Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, the Poetic Justice Group at MIT Media Lab is looking for a back-end developer with Python experience in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they're open to remote candidates. Lautman, Mosca, Neal & Company is looking for a graphic production artist in Washington, D.C. HubSpot is looking for a content designer. They're looking for candidates in Cambridge, Massachusetts and in Toronto, though they are open to remote candidates in both the U.S. and in Ontario. Design B&B is looking for a senior project designer in Chicago, Illinois. And Constructive is looking for a senior UX designer. This is a remote position. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Raven LVL PhD, a strategic design lead at City Ventures and lecturer for the School of Design and Creative Technologies at the University of Texas. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Raven Veal. I'm based in Austin, Texas, and I am a strategic design lead at City Ventures. I am also a lecturer at the University of Texas School of Design and Creative Technologies, where I teach for the Master's in Arts in Design for Health program. How has 2022 been going for you so far? Oh my gosh, 2022 has just been an influx of emotions. <laughs> it's been exciting. It's been exhausting at times. It's been a learning experience for me as far as really just wanting to dive into rest and what that looks like, especially when I've been so accustomed to a very fast-paced hustle, grind, culture context. One of my favorite inspirations is Trisha Hersey and in in her Nat Ministry, where she says mm. justice looks like a space to rest. And so I've been trying to practice that and lean into that a little bit more. But overall, I think 2022 is, has taught me a lot of a lot of important things about myself and others. 
diving into rest right now sounds so good. I guess because I'm recording this <laughs> like at the end of a long work day. I'm like, oh, diving yes. into rest is. Yes. I love what they're doing with the NAP initiative. I think especially over these past few years, it's become something that so many people have empathized with over the pandemic. Exactly. A hundred percent. I love and just honor and respect the work that she's doing. Overall, I mean, you mentioned this kind of like, you know, this hustle grind culture, like how have you been managing yourself through the pandemic? Yeah. So I think one practical thing that I've been trying to do is to schedule for myself moments of joy throughout the day. So I will typically try to block off, you know, the first half of my day. It's a privilege I'm able to do this just for heads down time. And then I'll, you know, dedicate the latter part of my day to meetings. But even in between, I'll like schedule you know, maybe 30 minutes or so for like a dance break or (laughs) I'm a woman of faith. So I'll set aside some time to just pray or to kind of read the Psalms or just do something that is just, or walk my dog, go outside, like get away from the screen, but just really try to schedule those pockets of joy and rest throughout my day. Like literally like in my calendar on my to-do list uh, and make it a priority for me. I'm the same way. I'll tell people if it's not on my calendar, I'm not doing it. Like I schedule all the time. I'll do like focus time in the morning. I'll schedule some time after work if I have it. And I usually try to make it so I have at least one day. And it's usually Friday where after 4 p.m., do not disturb is on. Don't call me. Don't talk like that's my time. You can talk to me on Saturday, but anything after 4 p.m. on Friday, it's a wrap. Exactly. And claiming just that time for yourself establishing that boundary. So healthy. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Now I want to talk about your work at City Ventures. I know we can't kind of go too much into it, but you mentioned you're a strategic design lead there. Can you talk about what strategic design actually is? Like, what is that? Yeah. So there are a lot of names for this. I was actually talking to a, a colleague about this. So strategic design, you also hear like business or venture design. Some people say design strategy, but Essentially, it's the skill of addressing systemic challenges with innovative approaches aligned across several dimensions. So you'll have business viability, right? That's, you know, the question of do we have a distinctive, sustainable business strategy? You have user desirability. Are we adequately addressing the core need of the community? Technical feasibility. So is the proposed solution possible, you know, to create and and bring to life? And then I like to add a fourth dimension, which is ethical impact. So how well does this approach optimize good and minimize harm? And not just on an individual level, but also like a societal and environmental level as well. So the core of actually what I do is research driven, but it's more so generative and strategic design in the sense that you have to have a really critical and forward thinking eye to provide direction for the team that brings all of those pieces together. What would you say just like a typical day looks like for you? Yeah, so a typical day at City Ventures, (laughs) it varies a bit. So I may actually be conducting research, speaking with stakeholders and one-on-one interviews. Right now, we're running a diary study on one of our projects. So that may look like, you know, making sure that the participants of that specific research study are engaged, analysis, playing back our research findings in creative and engaging ways. We also have, you know, I may be 
participating in a team meeting that day. I'm a part of two teams. Uh, so the Racial Equity Design and Data Initiative. And we have syncs where we, you know, come together, discuss what we're working on and kind of what the next steps are. And then also I'm a part of the UX research team as well. And we have different meetings where, you know, we touch base on methodology. We talk about what's going on from a current event perspective as it relates to research. And so all of that runs the gamut of a week. And I may even touch multiple components of that within a given day. I mean, it sounds pretty busy, like a lot of research, <laughs> a lot of meetings. But I guess with, with something called, I mean, City Ventures, it sounds like it is pretty kind of futuristic and forward thinking. So that makes sense. It's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. And I will just shout out to the team because there is an element of, of flexibility to the day that I feel like is necessary for this type of work, but that also makes it pretty enriching and uh, eliminates some of the burnt outness <laughs> that you might get from having so many things to do. Yeah. Now, outside of that work, you mentioned you're also a lecturer at uh, the University of Texas at Austin for their School of Design and Creative Technologies. How did you first get started there? I first got started last year, actually. The courses that I teach are fieldwork in design. So I taught that in the fall, uh, really kind of exploring ethnographic methods of research in design. And then this semester, I taught storytelling for presentation. So the context of presenting your work in a meaningful way. And you know what? I just have a passion for empowering the next generation of designers and researchers in this space. And it's actually in the, the program that I teach for is specifically design and health. And my entire background is in healthcare, public health, psychology, behavioral science. And I think that design has a very powerful place in that industry. And all of the students, remarkable. I teach both medical students, so it's Dell medical students, and also current students in that program. But to circle back and answer your question, so I got, I got involved in it last year just as a way for me to kind of give back in that specific way and, and inspire aspiring designers. Yeah, design and health is a really big field. I mean, I think, you know, we look at technology things like wearables and stuff like that, but really the whole healthcare experience, I would say over the past, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years has really been transformed by design, whether it's actually designing different like apps and programs for people to access services or even just making different interfaces and forms and things easier for people to understand. Like, I don't know if people really kind of think about just how much design plays into health like that. It really is. And healthcare itself is such a relational industry. And I think that in the past and sometimes currently now, like there's a an overemphasis on the emerging technologies and technology in the space, but everything is to the end of how do we, I guess, uplift and optimize the relationships between patients and caregivers, between patients and providers, between providers and payers. Like it's very relational oriented. And so it's really interesting and intriguing the role of design in building experiences and technologies to support the optimization of those relationships. Yeah. I'd also say even to like kind of build trust. I mean, if we just oh, think about yes. over the past few years with this pandemic, so much of whether it's forms or commercials or any sort of like advertisements or things that talk about prevention, you know, washing your hands, wearing masks, et cetera, like that design has really played a very interesting part in 
I think, how information has been spread about, you know, COVID. I completely agree. And and that word comes up a lot, trust, especially kind of with the history of certain communities, you know, our community in the space. I use a term like progressive trust, right? You're not going to be able to get 100% of trust back immediately, especially if there have been certain groups that have been wronged in the past. But how can you slowly rebuild that by being reliable, by being consistent, by being transparent about in the design of the experiences that you're delivering? So Yes, love that word trust. And I I think it's something that, you know, is very pervasive in the industry right now. How has it been just kind of teaching during the pandemic? You know what? It's been interesting. Okay, so in the fall, my course was completely virtual. And I think that has its pros and cons, right? So I guess the pros are, you know, it's, it's immediately accessible. You can essentially roll out of bed and like join the Zoom call and be in the class. But you do like there's just there's no replacement for that kind of in-person interaction, especially, you know, when I was teaching fieldwork in design, that there was still that in-person component. Right. When you're doing ethnography, you can do it. There's such a thing as digital ethnography, of course, but really kind of immersing yourselves in the world and environments of those that you're trying to serve. You have to do that in person. So I would say it was, you know, a welcome challenge, again, with both its pros and cons this year. It's been a little more kind of relaxed in the sense that we've been able to meet in person. So, yeah, I've experienced a gamut of emotions kind of teaching in both modalities. You're teaching in Texas, in the South. I'm here in Georgia, in Atlanta. It is, especially since there aren't necessarily any, I guess, widespread restrictions or you have to do this, you have to do that. So it's really kind of up to the professor, or at least in my experience, it has been in terms of what kind of rules or regulations we'll implement. I tend to err on the side of caution. So when we were meeting in person, you know, last fall, I encouraged the use of masks and, you know, that we were, were safely distanced when we did meet in person. So yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely been a challenge in that regard. Yeah. What do you learn from the students there? Like, what do they teach you? Ooh, I think they teach me just the need for more tangible and practical modalities of learning, specifically as it relates to design. I'm a professor or, well, adjunct professor of practice. So I'm, I'm still in industry and then also teaching as well. And when you are kind of in a quote unquote lab based setting, it can err on the side of theory. And I think the the students continuously remind me in their kind of engagements and interactions as they're actively seeking jobs in industry or as they're actively engaging patients as in their residencies or, or what have you, that there's a need for just very tactical, practical, like education, (laughs) you know, not just theory, but how do we apply this to kind of what we're doing? How do we apply this to where it is that we're trying to go? I think that's one thing that I've learned from them. Also, too, that there's just just a, a diversity of thought and then a diversity of learning styles. Not everyone learns the same way. And I think it's been really interesting to explore creative ways to engage people, how to make uh, design education accessible to different types of learners. As you can imagine, like when we're on Zoom, you know, making sure that you have the closed captioning on, but then how do you engage people who may be easily distracted in that type of setting or environment? So I think that's the second thing that I've learned from the students, too. Mm. I want to get more into your background, including this new initiative that you're you're working on now. But 
I want to switch gears here a little bit. I want to talk about just kind of your origin story. Like, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up, I'm a native Texan. So I grew up okay. in Fort Worth, funky town, home of the stockyards. But, you know, they're they coming up. <laughs> I grew up there. Uh, my mom, actually, she, oh, I love her so much. She's my creative inspiration. She had me when she was 16 years old. She did an amazing job, even in that context. Uh, but yeah, she was kind of my introduction to all things creative. She's an amazing artist. She can draw. She can sing, <laughs> even though she doesn't She doesn't do it publicly or anything like that. But yeah, that's kind of where I grew up. My neighborhood, Stop 6 in Fort Worth, Texas, down the street from Dunbar High School. I personally went to Arlington Heights High School. It's kind of weird. It's Arlington Heights, but it technically is in Fort Worth, not in Arlington. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just I, I grew up with myself. It was my my little brother and sister. There's like an 11 year gap <laughs> there. But yeah, that's where I grew up and a little bit about my context. Well, with your mom being a creative, I'm, I'd imagine you were probably exposed to a lot of like design and art and everything early on, right? Yeah, definitely a lot of art and musically too. Like I, <laughs> so one thing that's been a part uh, that people may not know is that I used to rap back in the day. I all every okay. I, had a whole bunch of different, don't ask me to rap, <laughs> but I used, to have like, I used to put together different girl groups. So like in high school, we had a group called UGQ. So underground Queens. And that if you're from Houston, you know, UGK underground King. So it was like an ode to them. Nice. But yeah, my mom, like she was young, right? So we were listening to rap music together. We were listening to like look him together <laughs> um, and different, just different creative outlets like that. You know, you know, she taught me how to draw. So I would draw with her and my brother and sister can, are amazing art. They're like better than me. They're amazing artists as well. So yeah, I was always in a very creative space. Like I'm, you know, I have a group of cousins and, you know, every year we had like what's called cousin camp. So we go down to my my aunt's house, my aunt Ricky's house in Pearland, Texas. And I would be the cousin that's like putting everything, everyone together to do something <laughs> fun. Like, OK, hey, guys, let's make a play and let's act it out. Or, hey, let's create a family award show and let's act it out. Or let's create a song. We actually did a <laughs> we did a remake of Tupac song. What is it called? You know, when he's like, all I need in a enemy and my girlfriend. Yeah, girlfriend. So yeah. Remade, yeah. Re- we remade that one to like all we need in this life. It says me and my cousins. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so yeah, so like I'm the person in the family. Like, hey, Raven's always going to kind of get get all the cousins and then people together to do something creative. And I think a lot of that came from my mom and just her just creativity in general. I was really up under her and and yeah, just absorbing and observing all that in her. That sounds like a lot of fun growing up around like a bunch of cousins and everything like that. That sounds fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, you're you're growing up, you're, you know, kind of exposed to all of this stuff. You end up going to Texas A&M University, starting out in undergrad, you majored in psychology. And for your master's, you kind of focused on public health. How was your experience there at Texas A&M? Yeah, so A&M was an experience. <laughs> I did, you know, want to be actually become a a psychiatrist until I was like, oh, I don't really want to go to medical school or go down this route. But yeah, it was pretty engaging. I met a lot of friends there. I actually met my husband there. Um, he majored in engineering and we met our junior year. And yeah, I think the the last year or so I took a course in nutrition, I think it was an elective. And my professor, uh, Dr. Joanne Lupton, rest in peace, she actually introduced me to the field of public health. And she was like, hey, have you ever considered 
addressing people, not just on an individual level, but on a population-based level. And that really intrigued me. And so she was very instrumental in me applying to the my master's program in public health. She gave me a, a full ride, essentially, at the Allen Foundation Fellowship. And yeah, like I, at, during that time too, I got a certificate in health systems and design as a part of the, the, the College of Architecture at AM. And that was also me trying to <laughs> tap into my creative side and really understand and explore, like, how can I use creativity in this space to not just affect people on an individual level, but in a, on a larger kind of population based level? And so that was pretty interesting trying to understand how you know, the design of architecture and space, of hospitals, of wellness centers, like how that influences health in that way. So I would say overall, you know, my time at A&M was, was pretty pleasant. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you were kind of, you know, early to the game with kind of bringing that knowledge of, of merging design and health in this way. So it wasn't something that, I don't know, was that kind of the spark for what you're doing now? I think so. Like, you know, I can't run from who I am, right? <laughs> so I'm I'm a creative at heart and I've always been trying to, I call it like the art of the pivot. Like how do I at the same time like support myself and do something that I feel like will make money and keep me afloat, but then it's also authentic to me. And so I've always been on this quest to try to merge both sides of my brain. You know, how do I integrate the creative part of who I am into this space that maybe is not traditionally seen as creative. Like, I don't know when people think about or hear public health, I don't think people think creative, creative. I don't know. But yeah, always trying to, maybe, maybe it did start there as far as me trying to merge those worlds. Hmm. Now, after A&M, you did research work at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston for a little over two years. Tell me about your research work there. Yeah. So University of Texas Health Science Center. So that was when I did my PhD program. And that kind of funneled up into my dissertation in which I was trying to use data-driven technologies in, in that sense, like smartphone technology to assess mental health, specifically among college students. So obviously, like, unfortunately, depression is very common, you know, among college students. And so I was trying to explore other ways of both actively and passively trying to identify for that before it's too late. And so that's really what my my research work was about, trying to understand how to leverage some of the geospatial technology in your phone, you know, so you flip it on and you, it, it can locate you, right? But there are ways to kind of use some of that data kind of combined with other forms of data to assess whether or not your behaviors are peculiar, for lack of a better term, to alert or notify other people of that you may be in trouble or there, there may be a need. And also part of that was trying to prototype like a potential mobile application that could deliver that type of service as well. And so that's I think I have my my dissertation linked on my website if anyone's interested. <laughs> I, I wouldn't imagine. But yeah, that pretty much kind of summarizes some of the research work that I did there. Mm. And so you're kind of working with tech and design also while you're doing this research work. It kind of sounds like this was maybe a bit of a, a breakthrough moment in a way. Absolutely. I do want to kind of shout out to my one of my main advisors, Dr. Ross Shigog, and he actually was doing some work on usability research work for a specific technology. And I never heard of that before. I never heard of being able to do research in that space. And that's one of the things that inspired the topic for 
for my my dissertation. And so he was pretty instrumental in, in opening up that world. Like, hey, there are these emerging technologies that are starting to be used in this space, specifically like the healthcare industry. How do we ensure that they are safe and effective and impactful for end users? And that really inspired me and intrigued me, especially as I saw a lot of these emerging trends with tech happening in healthcare. So mm-hmm. I would say that definitely served as a breakthrough in helping me to pivot, you know, my work and my intention from academia into industry. I'm curious, what do you think about like this new class of of wearables that are out here as it relates to like healthcare or, or public health? I mean, there's, of course, you have things like Apple watches, but there's, I've seen like sensory rings. I've seen sunglasses. I've seen pendants. Like, what are your thoughts on this kind of new class of like health tech wearables? There's a lot of conversation around wearables, especially as it relates to like engagement, you know, how often people are actually using them, (laughs) the actual design of them, you know, when you kind of get into the wearables, you're getting into the fashion space. So being able to design them in such a way that people want to wear them on a consistent basis, so you can get that consistent data. And then also, yeah, the quality of the data itself and what you're using for. There's a lot of talk and exploration around data transparency and data ownership, patients being able to, our consumers, you know, being able to own the data that are being used, not just to provide services to you individually, but are typically aggregated in data to inform other things, right? But we may not always hear about that. It's called data capitalism. And there's like a a lot of of research around that just in terms of the ethics of that. But yeah, there's a lot. Um, You just let me know how deep to go. But I think in general, it can be useful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about, you know, my, my grandparents, again, rest in peace, and how there could be utility in that sense, especially as a caregiver, and you want to make sure that they're okay. You know, I can see just from a preventive standpoint, you know, I think Apple Watch is kind of working on things that can prevent, you know, certain things from happening, heart attacks or things like that. So I think there's a lot of utility there. I would just be mindful again of, of the both the accessibility and then the ethics around the design and, and transparency of what you're doing. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, I think about like my mom, I think probably still wears her Fitbit, even though I don't know if Fitbit is still in now with Apple Watch. <laughs> I would imagine it probably <laughs> is. But I think it's it's interesting because now we're sort of approaching the space where you have these types of wearables across generations, right? Like, yeah. I think it was one thing when they first came out with things like Fitbit, et cetera, or pedometers, for example, that mm-hmm. were pretty, I mean, high tech, but low tech compared to what we would see out of the Apple Watch that can like detect your heartbeat or see if you had a fall or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. something that I also think about with this as it relates to kind of health tech are kind of, I guess, I don't know, I guess end cases. And when I say end cases, I'm thinking, what happens if you're using a wearable from a company that has your health data and then the company goes under? Like, Mm -hmm. where does your health data go? Does it just vanish into the ether? Like, I'm thinking of like the Internet of Things and how sometimes I just heard about this company, Insteon, that used to do a bunch of like smart bulbs and things like that. And then the company went under and now people are just kind of stuck with this hardware that they can't update that no longer works. It's just obsolescence due to bankruptcy. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
I don't know. I'm just curious about that, like what the ethics are behind that sort of stuff. I don't know if that's something that is kind of part of, of what you think about when it comes to like design and health. Yeah, I think that yeah, data ownership is a really huge thing. I even think about like companies like uh, it's not necessarily a wearable, but just twenty three and Me, right? Where you're oh yeah, you're oh yeah, your <laughs> genetic data and information, and then they're turning around using it in like clinical trials, and oftentimes, be, well, most of the times, like being compensated for that, but then you don't either see or know that that's even happening, and so I think there's, I think that there's a lot of both conversation and action around like how do we again, kind of empower, you know, data empowerment, like how do we both make these kind of data or privacy and confidentiality, like agreements, terms and conditions more salient for people. So they're not just checking a box and they know what's actually going on with their data. And then how do we follow up and enforce, you know, like you said, like what happens if the company goes over, like what happens to the data that should be clearly outlined and communicated back to the consumer. People should be clearly able to opt out (laughs) if they do not want their data used in that context for or to opt in. But it should be very clear. And transparency is a really, really huge thing. I think we haven't had that, especially in this industry in the past, like healthcare itself is very paternalistic. And so I think that I'm hopeful and optimistic that's currently changing. And I do see efforts in ways that's changing too. Now, you've held down a lot of other research jobs and fellowships. I want to talk about your work that you did at IBM as a design researcher. I first heard you speak during last year's State of Black Design. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so I I love my IBM family. (laughs) (laughs) When I was there, I mainly worked on the clinical development side. So leading and conducting research to produce insights for that. I also, during my time there, and this is what I spoke about at the State of Black Design Conference, but the IBM Racial Equity and Design Initiative. And so while I was there, um, just worked with an amazing group of talented people, including Nigel Prentice and a bunch of others. I don't want to, you know, go run the list of the gamut, but they know who they are. And yeah, I just had the privilege of being able to help to lead the development and publication of a leadership guide for design managers. And really that's kind of looking at how do you help cultivate a culture within the organization for Black designers and other designers of color, where they not only want to to come here, but they want to stay here. (laughs) And so that's kind of essentially what that guide tries to lay out and provoke in design managers and leaders who read it. But yeah, my time there was, I'm so grateful. A shout out to Jody Cutler. I think she's now at HEB. And also uh, Rob Pierce. I don't know. I just, I really love my IBM (laughs) family. I miss them. And I I love that they're continuing the work. Yeah, my time there was, was a joy. Nothing but good things to say. How is your work now as a strategic design lead different from your earlier work as a design researcher? Yes, I think my work now is a lot more generative in the sense that it's almost before we even have a product or something to create. It's really more about the problem finding and the problem scoping, whereas my work at IBM was more so evaluative research. So we have an existing legacy platform or product. How is it currently working? What can we do to improve it? And now it's like, okay, here's this larger issue. Like what aspect of the issue, you know, are we trying to solve? So I would say that's the main difference, kind of going from more evaluative design research to more generative research and strategy. In your opinion, what role does art, spirituality, and the moral imagination play in the design of future technology? On a personal level, 
I believe that the greatest innovations in society kind of stem from internal and cultural transformation. And one of my personal beliefs is that our inner world shapes our outer world. So in other words, who we are as people, like our worldviews, our character, like what we define as right and wrong, like all of our biases, both good and bad, that influences what we choose to bring into the world. And so because of that, I think that introspection or introspective research is a critical part of design and should be a required part of the process. And this can look like I'm uh, recalling Dr. Leslie Ann Noel. She has this really amazing exercise to help teams identify their positionality, right? And core elements of their identity. So like your race, ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your marital status, and how that shapes how you work together, both what's present and the gaps. But in addition to that, like I'm also a woman of faith, right? And I grew up in the church, like primarily Baptist, you know, we're here down South. So Mm -hmm. my belief in God is a huge part of my identity. And because of that, like, I strongly believe that design is very like spiritual, like in the way that you're taking something intangible and materializing it. So two other things that I'm exploring are the power of art, And then, you know, moral imagination as it relates to design. Now, with art, a lot of designers actually come from the art world, you know, and and art itself is so powerful just for expressing who we are and then also who we aspire to be individually and culturally. And I think we can also learn a lot from artists. You know, I think about how storytelling is such a huge part of design. And you have, you know, Nigerian novelist uh, Chinua Achebe, like he's so profound in the way that he tells stories. Like what if we were to take, not take in in an extractive stance, but be inspired by the way that he tells stories and use that when we're designing. I think about digital ethnography and what we could learn from photographers like Gordon Parks, who said, you know, what the eye sees is its own, what the heart can perceive is a very different matter. So that's what I think about in terms of art and how we can integrate that into the design process as a, as a way of both understanding who we are and our identities more, and then also being aspirational in who we want to be. And then with moral imagination, I think that in and of itself is, is just our ability to look beyond profit, <laughs> to understand how what we're designing affects the values, the beliefs, you know, the behaviors of society. Like, how do we imagine the greatest good? How do we define that good? And so, yeah, I, I'm really interested in exploring, like, how do we do that, both applying moral imagination to the process and the way that we design, mm-hmm. and then also to the output in, in what we design. That's fascinating. Wow. How did you sort of, I guess, work to kind of create all of this? Is this just like a culmination of your work, your, you know, you mentioned being a woman of faith, like, how does this all sort of come together? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just me trying to be who I am, you know, growing more into who I am and allowing, you know, not compartmentalizing my life, you know, and just trying to be fully me all the time. And so when we talk about inclusion, even when we talk about like, there's a lot of conversation just around ethics and the initiative that we're working on right now is around racial equity. And one thing that I find myself asking a lot is like, whose ethics are we talking about? One. And then two, I guess, like, what would it look like to put love, you know, at the center of design? There's a lot of critique right now around design thinking and human centered design. 
I think a lot of that, for me at least, kind of boils down to this prioritization of profit over like real human needs and environmental needs. But what would it look like to really center love, you know, in our design process? You know, and a lot of talks about the ethics and equity, to me, it boils down to that and really unpacking what that is and then what that looks like for everyone and everything involved. And yeah, that's something I'm, it's a question I'm still exploring. I do not have it all figured out, (laughs) but it is something that I feel like I'm pulling on more and it's tugging at me more too. Mm. Speaking of this kind of pull, you know, you talked about a little bit earlier, this new initiative that you're working on. And it's, it's something that's new separate from your work at City Ventures and separate from your teaching work at the University of Texas. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. So Nexar Creative. So it's essentially a a learning studio for world-changing designers. And we're really trying to reimagine design education by engaging current design professionals across the globe in, you know, these virtual arenas. And our arenas are shaped around design skills like service design, strategic design, UX research, many of which are increasingly in demand. And then afterwards, those who complete the program will receive NFT certificate. That's like a non-fungible token that really signifies that you've done the work. And so our first arena is around the discipline of strategic design. You know, so in other words, you know, applying design in order to increase an organization's innovative and competitive qualities, especially when you're thinking about systemic challenges like a healthcare, education, a climate change. And this year's challenge theme was how might we reimagine um, maternal care, you know, for black mothers and their families. And for our inaugural cohort, we had, you know, nine black women from across the globe, like Tanzania, Nigeria, France, England, United States, really kind of both learn uh, strategic design while trying to tap up tackle and kind of approach this challenge in a very responsible and ethical and a compassionate way. So that's in a nutshell what we're trying to do is an eight-week fully remote challenge, really trying to reimagine like an online course, make it really engaging in that way. And yeah, super excited about it. Nice. At this point in your career, how do you define success? Oh, man. I love this question because I'm often revisiting this question. (laughs) I would say like when I was younger, success was very much, you know, okay, how much money am I making? Do I have this and that? Very material. And I think now I'm trying to measure success by my growth. And then also too, like how much I am able to love and serve those around me. One of my favorite scriptures is that like perfect love casts out all fear. And so this year I'm trying to to love, I mean, it won't be perfect, but <laughs> I'm just trying to love and serve as much as I can and be fearless in that, like be really bold and fearless in loving people as I learn what love is to people. So for me, that's what success is, you know, kind of comparing myself to myself last year to this year. Am I growing in love? You know, am I growing as a person? Am I growing in the way that I'm, I'm able to serve other people. So I would say that's how I'm defining success right now. If you could sit down with your teenage self, you could sit down with the underground queen herself. <laughs> <laughs> what would you want to tell her? Oh my goodness. I would tell her to put out her solo album. Okay. <laughs> that's the first thing I would say. Put out a solo album. You got skills. But secondly, I just, I know this is like super corny, but just to really be yourself. And I, oh my gosh, every time I heard people say that, I was like, "Ah, can you give me something else? But it really is true. I mean, I feel like 
I feel like I'm returning, like even in like the process of success and growth, a lot of that is returning kind of to myself. It's like, it's a lot of unlearning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yeah, I would definitely say like, really be true to who you are. Don't change for anyone or anything. Obviously, well, change is necessary, but like, don't change for negative reasons or what have you. Just try to be as authentic to you as you can be. And, you know, to to kind of flip it a bit, you know, for people that are listening, what advice do you want to give them if they're listening to your story and they want to follow in your footsteps or they want to kind of learn more about like strategic design and stuff? What would you tell them? I am super open. Like if you want to ping me directly, I'm available on LinkedIn. I'm also on ADP list if anyone wants to to chat that way. But yeah, also I would I would say just get a head start by kind of googling up strategic design and also too just find ways if you can like in your current work or in in volunteer opportunities to integrate yourself or start thinking about those more generative questions, questioning in a productive way, like the direction of the products or the experiences or the things that you're working on, just as, a, as an initial start to understanding that specific discipline. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years? Like, what do you want the next chapter of your story to be? Oh, <laughs> I would love ideally to be well, one, I with the, the organization I'm a part of now with City Ventures, I'd love to to help support the initiative that the racial equity design and data initiative for that to really be impactful both to city itself and then also externally Two, I would love it if I could really take, you know, what I'm trying to build with Nexar creative and impact many different cohorts with my passion and mission to, to cultivate like world changing designers And then lastly, I'd love to be a mom. Like I'd love to just start building my own family and and really leaning into that building of of community around myself. So I would say that's kind of where I'd see myself in, in five years. All right. Well, you know, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online? Yeah, so I'd say the easiest thing to do is to go to my website, ravenveal.com, and then that should link you to everything else, like all my social media, an overview of the projects that I work on, all of that. So hit me up there and would love to chat. Sounds good. Well, Raven Veal, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. One, I think for just illustrating the work that you do, I can really tell that you have this this kind of innate passion for it. And also with it coming at such an important time, I think just in human history, it's super important to hear about design researchers and strategic design doing this kind of work, but also just showing that like, this is a path that's possible for someone to take. Uh, You had mentioned kind of before we recorded about people being able to kind of create and sort of recreate themselves. And I think what you've shown definitely throughout, you know, just telling your story is how you've been able to build yourself up to be the expert that you are today. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Raven LVL PhD, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Raven and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, 
with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we always love to hear from you on social media, so please don't be a stranger. Hit us up. We're on both Twitter and on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become, and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.